listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Send in your question or comment. To participate in the show, you can text or call 757-774-8482. Or to email the show, you can go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. Indeed, welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files Podcast, your fortnightly foray into guitar science. My name is Eric Daw. I'm your host. I'm your resident guitar scientist here. It's just me this evening. No co-host, but we're going to have fun anyhow. Uh, lately, I have been working on... You know what I've done? I have edited and re-edited this silly book that I keep threatening you with. My My book about about uh, guitar schematics. It really is coming soon. I've <laughs> I've had to edit and re-edit it uh, uh, s- several times. And then the, um, the gentleman I'm working with, who is helping me publish this, right, uh, has redrawn the schematics because my drawings were, I mean, they worked, but he's much better at making them look cool. Right, and as long as you're doing something, you might as well make them look, make it look cool. So, uh, the I, I'm ch- I'm checking and double checking and triple checking each schematic because I want to. <laughs> my biggest fear is that we put this book out and one of the schematics is wrong. So, um, we've been fixing the schematics and. There's just little edits here and there through the text. Anyway, I think we're really on the f- on the final edits here, and we should be going to print soon. And I will have an announcement soon concerning the book with uh, schematics, guitar schematics, or I really should say layouts. They're not technically schematics, but everybody says schematics when they're when they're talking about um, guitar wiring diagrams. So I just use the term schematics. Anyhow. What else have have I been working on that you may find of interest? You know what I do? I man, I am constantly looking. Maybe you do this too. I'm constantly looking for guitars in thrift stores, pawn shops, and antique stores. So I kind of have this route here in town. And if I travel, I do the same thing. Like, okay, where's the thrift stores? You know, um, and I buy. I buy a ton of guitars this way. Uh, and you get deals, you know, because, um, man, there's so many oddball guitars that are off the radar that people don't know they're valuable, right? So I bought just recently, going on my rounds here, I bought a vintage Japanese Toyota guitar. Now, before I saw this, before I bought this, I didn't even know Toyota made guitars, but apparently they did. Briefly, in the 70s, they made guitars, and they made acoustics and electrics, and pretty, you know, high-end for for early 70s Japanese standards, pretty high-end. Uh, this was basically a, a Gibson Barney Kessel copy, like a lawsuit-style copy, you know, like the... I mean, the headstock had the the proper Gibson-looking open book um, profile on the top, right? Pretty cool guitar. I picked it up for, you know, a pretty good deal, and I sold it on Reverb within just a few days because it's a a pretty rare guitar. Pretty rare. Very cool, too. If you want to see it, go uh, check out my Instagram. It's up there, which is just at ericdawcustomguitars. Pretty cool guitar. Uh, so that was kind of exciting. And I find guitars like this, you know, an 
oftentimes I just keep them because if I can pick up a really cool vintage uh, harmony guitar or something like that for a hundred bucks, then I just, I just keep it. But you know, that's how I get, <laughs> that's how I get a lot of my, a lot of my personal guitars. But see, now the secret's out. Now, now you're all going to be going around and doing that. Probably not in my town though. So I think I'm safe. No, you guys probably already do that. And if you don't, you should, because, you know, somebody else is going to grab these guitars. They, they do, they come through, they come through the thrift stores, they come through the pawn shops, they come through the antique stores. You got to be on the lookout, man, especially if you're on vacation and just looking for something to do. I mean, guitar stores are always fun to hit, but they already know what guitars are worth in there. The fun thing is finding a buried treasure in an antique store or a thrift store. That's fun. Just the thrill of it. Just the thrill of the the hunt is worth it. It's fun. What else can I tell you? I've been, you know how things come in waves? I've been refretting guitars like mad. For some reason, it's refret month. So so there's that. I've been doing that. Um, What else have I been doing? I, I listed a bunch of things on Reverb, just random. Random different things that I've had for years that I've decided to sell or... You know, things I found pretty recently that I decided to sell. Anyhow, uh, this is going to be a little different episode. I, I don't have a ton of content, and I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about Mark Tossman lately. You may remember I interviewed Mark Tossman. Gosh, it's probably been six years, five, six years ago now. Uh, and I, I'm going to replay that interview for the second half of the show. For the first half of the show, I have a few voicemails and uh, then we'll we'll replay that interview and my apologies if you've heard this interview recently, but it's just it's such a great interview. I think it's one of the best interviews uh that I've had on the show. We talk a lot about vintage uh guitar, you know, acoustic guitar restoration, neck resets, using hot hide glue. It's very informative. I learned a lot from Mark Tossman when I knew him when I lived in Seattle. And uh, it's a super cool interview. So even if you've already heard it, check it out again. It's, It's a good interview. Solid, solid stuff. But first thing is first. First things first, let's take a few uh, calls here. Mm-hmm, if I can get to them in time. And I can't. That's all right. It just takes a minute to push all these buttons. Here we go. Hi, Eric. This is Rhett Harris from Rhett's Fret. Hope you're doing well. Um, my question is about your uh, pickup winder. I saw that you you use one that's similar to Leo Fender's, but I don't know if you've expounded upon, like, the actual parts. Uh, you probably have in a previous episode. But I just wanted to know, like, if I'm, I would really like to build my own, I think. And I wanted to know what, uh, parts would I need and roughly how to put them together. I mean, I can figure out some stuff, but I, I think I'd probably need to know what I need first. So, if you don't mind answering that, that would be awesome. Uh, and I hope you are doing well. Bye bye. Cool. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, I, you know, somewhere years ago, I posted pictures of my pickup winder next to uh, an early Leo Fender pickup winder and an early Seth Lover pickup winder, and they all look about the same. You know, they're actually really, really basic, crude pickup winders. My pickup winder is a, um, just a direct drive electric motor so that you know, oftentimes there's a extra um, a belt that's turning an auxiliary shaft, uh, and that's where your pickup mounts to. On mine, the pickup mounts directly to the motor. I just made it. I made a um, a, a a plate out of masonite that I can mount the pickup to, and there is just a like a you know, like a pulley that has a set screw 
kind of, you know, a, a lot like a knob that would go on a Telecaster. There's just a set screw on the side. So there's a pulley with a masonite plate that I can mount the pickup to, and that just gets bolted directly onto the end of the shaft of this old uh, electric motor that I had. And it's just a, it's just a tiny little electric motor. It's not very big. It's about the size of, you know, my fist, maybe, maybe a little bigger than that. And it's probably from the thirties, this electric motor that I had. Oftentimes you find these little electric motors like that on sewing machines and you can, you can rob the sewing machine of its electric motor. And I, I have it plugged into a sewing machine pedal. So you've got foot control. And it really, it's a rheostat, so you can just give it a little bit of gas and it goes slowly, or you can floor it and it spins really fast. Really simple. And then if, you know, you can mount the pickup right on there. If you need to wind a pickup backwards, then you just mount the pickup upside down. And that effectively reverses the wind. So you don't have to, you don't have to have a motor that can run forward and reverse. You can just flip the pickup. Uh, sometimes, you know, like with fender, with fender style pickups, there's a hole in the middle. So you can, so I actually attach them with a screw, kind of like a humbucker screw and a fine uh, nut and washer, right? And I can, I can just screw it down to this plate. If it's a pickup that doesn't have a hole through it, I'll use double-sided tape and just stick it to the, to the, uh, you know, the mounting plate there. So you can do that. The tricky part is getting a winder that works. Um, the first winder I used, uh, the first winder I used, I put a, I put a magnet on the mounting plate of the, um, for the pickup mounting plate, I put a magnet on it and then I put a reed switch right next to the mounting plate. And every time the magnet passes the reed switch, it makes a connection on the switch, right? You know, a reed switch is just basically a switch that's magnet activated. So every time the magnet passes by the reed switch, it sends a signal, right? And what I did for my first winder is I took a calculator apart and I hooked up the wires to the, I think it was to the equal sign. It's been so many years since I did this that I can't remember. And so when you start winding a pickup, you go plus one, you know, like zero plus one equals... And then every time the magnet would send a pulse to the calculator, it would hit the equal sign again, or maybe it was the plus sign. I can't remember, but basically it adds one. So every time the magnet passes by the read switch, it adds one more to the calculator. So you literally, I had a calculator sitting there and the read switch would add one every time it went by. Now, the trick with that was my calculator couldn't keep up if I went fast. So I had to wind kind of slow in order to get uh, an accurate reading. <clears throat> my second winder, I got a basically just an, an, uh, an electronic pulse activated uh, counter. So every time, you know, and then hooked up my read switch to that. So every time, every time the magnet activated the switch, it would send a pulse and one of the number rolls, you know, of the counter would, would turn to the next number. And that worked fine until it didn't. Now my counter is, I, I have, it's, it, now I, I kind of went backwards. It's no longer electronically activated. I found a, I think it's from a fishing, I, I think it's from a fishing reel winder. And it's a, it's a winding counter off of a, 
some kind of an automatic fishing <clears throat> fishing reel winder and it's it's just gear activated it turns and each time it turns it turns another number and so i hooked up a pulley with a a band i think it's from a vacuum cleaner or a sewing machine you know some kind of a belt just a belt that pulls it and it uh every time it makes a revolution it counts one right so that's my current winder uh it's a fishing reel it's a fishing reel counter and an old electric motor from the 30s and a sewing machine speed pedal you know the pedal the pedal is just a rheostat hooked up to a foot control and then the the kind that you need the kind that you want you'll see them in thrift stores occasionally the kind that you want is going to have two different plug-ins you know wall wall plugs you plug it into the wall and then it has two it has two outlets one will say motor and one will say light and the light is constantly on and the motor is the one that's controlled by the rheostat so you plug your electric motor into that motor outlet and then your foot control controls the speed uh of the uh of the electric motor that was a whole lot of information about my crude pickup winder you can buy commercially available pickup winders or you can uh find plans to make your own there's they're available online or uh Jason Lawler sells a book about how to make a really really fancy pickup winder but his pickup winder is it's truly it's truly fancy it's it's way fancier than mine mine is just a direct drive you know electric motor you can make one <clears throat> you can make one i think the first pickup i wound i just i literally stuck a pickup on a turntable and wound it at 78 rpm <laughs> and that can be done too but it takes forever you you really need something that turns faster than that so there you go. I hope that's what you wanted. It's probably more than you wanted, but there you go. Next. Hey, Eric, this is Mike in Chicago. A couple episodes ago, you took my question. I appreciate you doing that. Um, and in that same episode, I think you had a question or a comment, or I think you made a comment about GNL necks. I think you said something about the way they used the, um, they constructed the, those necks by orienting the wood to make them stronger or something. And I can't speak to that, but I, I have a, a comment or kind of an anecdote that I think you might find amusing. Um, my, uh, my parents owned a music store and I had the benefit of, um, of growing up in that environment. And there was a photo, a framed photo on the wall of my dad with Leo Fender. Cool. And, you know, I always thought that was a super cool picture and I asked him about it. Um, you know, probably talked to him about it on many occasions. And it was from a NAM show when NAM, the NAM show was held in Chicago, um, which of course is where I'm from and where the music store was. And, um, I, I, I believe this photo was during the GNL days as opposed to the Music Man days, um, because I think my parents were early dealers of GNL guitars. And anyways, the anecdote is my dad said that he visited the booth and met Leo and that's where the photo was taken. And there were a couple cinder blocks on the floor. And Leo said, Bob, I want to show you how strong these guitar necks are. And he took the guitar neck and laid it across the two cinder blocks where the, with the heel of the neck on one cinder block and the headstock on the other. And he said, okay, stand on this neck right in the middle. And my dad said, oh, Mr. Fender, I can't. I couldn't. I'm not going to do that. And he goes, no, please, go ahead, stand on it. You know, presumably they maybe they sighted down the neck to show that it was straight, you know. Yeah. To start out, and he stood on the neck and climbed off, and he goes, "Wow, that's that's amazing." He goes, "No, no, no, get back up there, jump up and down." And my and my dad said, "No, I, I, please, I, Mr. Fender, no, I can't. Please, please, Bob, jump up and down on that guitar neck." So my dad stood on the neck and did as as he was told by Leo Fender and jumped up and down on the neck. And you know, again, presumably they picked the neck up and sighted it down. The thing hadn't moved or warped or been damaged in any way so i don't know if that corroborates your theory about what makes good gnl guitar next particularly strong or not but um i always thought that was a pretty cool story that my dad met leo fender and leo insisted that my father jump up and down on one of his guitar necks. <laughs> so um 
yeah. So that's all I wanted to say. You know, love the podcast. You didn't have any calls in the last episode, so I thought I would call and and, uh, and give you a call to play. So <laughs> hope you guys are well. And um, yeah, love the podcast. Talk to you later. Bye. Awesome, man. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a great story. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've seen pictures of people standing. This is something that Leo must have done going back to the 50s because there are pictures in the 50s of guys standing on fender necks that are like sitting between two cinder blocks, you know, the heel on one cinder block and the, and the headstock on another cinder block and just some guy like standing on one leg and, the, you know, bouncing up and down. It must have been something that he that he told people to do a lot. In fact, it might even, it might even have been an ad at one time, like a magazine ad for Fender guitars. I don't recall. I'll have to look, I'll have to look and see, but yeah, I've seen pictures of, of people doing that before. So that must've been something Fender, Leo Fender told people often like, Hey, Hey, stand on this guitar neck, you know? And I mean, a maple, you know, guitar neck like that is, yeah, they're, I'm not surprised they didn't break. A maple with a reinforcing truss rod, yeah, not surprised that uh, that you can do that. But that is funny, man. I love it. Let's see if we've got another, thanks for the call. Thank you. Let's see if we've got another call here. Hello, my name is Bruce. From Gotham City, I've been having trouble regularly with round, wound strings from a certain two-lettered company that does fancy round, wound strings. They keep just breaking for no reason. Why do they do that? <laughs> I don't know. I think that was a joke call. But uh, if you're having trouble breaking a lot of strings, um, I would recommend using a little bit of graphite in in the uh, in the slots of the nut, and that that should help, regardless of the cause or the brand. Well, not necessarily the cause, but I think so. Did he say a famous two-lettered guitar string company? two letters and if I'm going to try to uh, I'm going to try to decode his call I think he meant round core strings and I think he's talking about DR DR round core strings and I the reason I think that is because I have pretty famously voiced my uh, disdain for those strings on the podcast before but I didn't know that uh, yeah that's the first I've heard this is the first I've heard of people having a problem breaking those strings more often. So there may be something going on with your guitar, man. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, apparently that was Batman. we got one more call. Hey, Eric, this is Rhett from Rhett's Frets. Um, I have less of a question. This is more of a comment, really. Uh, more of a comment, really, from... I had to pause it. This, so this is Rhett again. He called earlier. Uh, but Rhett has a, uh, guitar repair, uh, business down in Nashville. Rhett's frets. Anyway, go ahead, Rhett. Um, you had a fella who, um, wrote in about a ding that he got on the back of a guitar neck, um, from a shop, possibly, that he left it at. Um, I would say, I think you both gave great answers, and I just want to reiterate as, like, a shop owner, that I would want to know, like, if a guitar left my my hands in worse condition than when it got there, that, like, I would want to remedy that, and I would definitely do it. Um, also, if he's around Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, wants to find someone else to do business with, why, give me a shout. Thank you so much, Eric. Love the show. Love you. Hope you and Nat are doing fantastic thanks buddy Rhett's the best yeah that's a great point um same same if somebody felt that I did something wrong on their guitar I really would want them to tell me and let me make it right 
Yeah, absolutely. So as a shop owner, sure, that's that is my same perspective. I if if somebody felt like I didn't do the very best job because people will do this. They'll take and I know they do this because I've had people bring me guitars over and over again over the years and they'll say I took this to so and so's shop and I didn't like X, Y, and Z, so now I'm bringing it to you. So, so I know that they didn't take it back to that shop, and maybe there's a reason, or maybe they maybe they took it back to that shop and that shop told them to get bent. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. But um, yeah, if if something leaves my bench and it's not uh, it's not met with complete satisfaction, I want to know. I want to know about it, too. So that's a great point. Absolutely. All right. Let's take a little break, and then uh, we'll go uh, time traveling back to 2016 with an interview with Master Luthier, Mark Tossman. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore, except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com. You can go to Players Gear Music. You can order a neck straightening iron. Some people call it a neck press or a neck heater. It is an invaluable tool in my shop. I use it all the time. I'd be lost without one of these. I, I love having a neck straightening iron, and Rick is making a really, really stout industrial. It, I, I, think it, I think it's the best one that I've used, and I've, I've used a lot. I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the 70s and 80s, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one. From playersgearmusic.com. They're $7.49. I know that seems like a lot. It's it's a tool, I tell you what, it's gonna pay for itself a hundred times over. If you go to playersgearmusic.com, scroll down on the main page, scroll, scroll, scroll down to where it says Fan of the Fret Files Podcast. You click that, that adds one to your cart. And it's fifty bucks off. So instead of seven forty nine, it's six ninety nine. Six ninety nine, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron. Playersgearmusic.com has them, and you need one. I'm telling you. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out. And don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. This episode of the Fret Files Podcast is brought to you by Apex Coffee Roasters. Imagine always having fresh roasted coffee in your home. Now, imagine you didn't even have to leave the house for it. A subscription with Apex Coffee Roasters makes all of this possible. You choose the plan that best suits your needs, and they handle the rest. Their roaster will select a coffee option just for you and send it your way. Discounts are applied if you get a six-month or a year-long subscription. And shipping included if you're in the USA. Great coffee every morning. Just got a little bit easier. That's apexcoffeeroasters.com. And if you go there and use my promo code, you get an additional 10% off. That's pinup, P-I-N-U-P. That's at apexcoffeeroasters.com. Joining me now on the phone is Mark Tossman, the Martin Whisperer, the vintage Martin expert. <laughs> uh, how long have you been repairing guitars, Mark? Oh, this uh, about 41 years now. Wow. That's great, man. Uh, and how did, Yeah, pretty how, much my lifetime. Yeah, really. How did you get started? Uh Interestingly enough, well, we all probably go back to some exposure to woodworking tools, and in my case, that would be uh, a junior high and high school shop class, and uh, after high school, I was uh, playing guitar, all things guitar, teaching a little guitar, got curious about working on guitars, trying to apply what I knew to it, and um, feeble attempts at best, but my enthusiasm was there, and then shortly after that time frame, I got hired to work at uh, Mossman Guitars in Winfield, Kansas, 
1975 and worked for them for a few years, and that was the beginning, and never looked back. So how, how long did you work at Mossman? So I worked at Mossman for about two years, and um, after that, I started doing repair work at the same time for a music store in Wichita called EM Shorts Guitars. Worked for there for several, no, well, a couple more years, uh, and moved to California. And at that point, moved to San Francisco and uh, worked for what the time was called uh, Guitar Solo, now GSP. And I've done their repairs and still do some of their uh, repairs, their bigger problematic high-end repairs. From time to time, they'll ship me something. But that was for many years there. And and then uh, two or three stints working for Santa Cruz Guitars for Richard Hoover as he needed yeah. me to step in to fill the void for people who were gone or left or just just, just keeping production happening. So. Uh-huh. And when uh, yeah. at these uh, guitar companies, you were doing some building, or what were you doing? Yes, this, these were the building aspects um, at Mossman Guitars. I was initially there to do all their setup works. So uh, in the setup room, out came bodies and necks lacquered, and we assembled next to bodies, glued and fitted bridges, made nuts and saddles and fret jobs, and and pretty much the same thing for Santa Cruz Guitars, too. It's like you got two parts of guitar that have gone through production and now every disparity that didn't get recognized now needs to be accounted for when necks and bridges go on. And so that was a skill set I had uh, yeah. acquired and was most useful to these companies in that regard. I also built boxes and uh, assembled necks and things like that. Pretty much I worked in machine rooms too, and pretty much the whole gamut, but that was mostly where the lion's share of my time was, was in the final assembly and set up and make them into guitars, playing yeah. guitars. Have you ever done any custom builds on your own? Only a handful. Uh, so much, that's so much my passion to get there at some point. Uh, the last guitar, well, I'm actually finishing a guitar now that has been in the process for over 10 years. Wow. So that kind of says where my time to pull my own projects out on the workbench is just not readily available. I'm mostly buried in repair and restoration work. Oh, man, but I, I, I really hear that. do enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, that's my problem is I'm so buried in repairs that I don't get a chance to do the stuff I want to do. Yeah, it's yeah. like the mechanic who drives around in a beater because he's fixing everybody else's car. He yeah. never gets time for his own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at what, <clears throat> at, at what point did you relocate to Seattle, the Seattle area? So moved to Seattle in 2005, uh, got married at the tender age of 50 and joined my lovely wife up here. And I already had a few clients in the area. I did some repairs already for Emerald City, uh, not for Emerald City, but um, for uh, Jim Brown at Jet City Guitars. And made my acquaintance with the uh, Rosewood Guitar Shop, which is a classical guitar shop in the city. And uh, started with uh, those guys in the early days and still had clients around the country that would ship things to me from the East Coast, California, things like that. And, yeah. Yeah, well, so I'm sure, my rival. Yeah. Well, I'm sure glad that uh, we've connected uh, through Emerald City Guitars because I do, you know, I do 90, 95% of the repairs that come in there. But occasionally I'll get a repair that it's, I know it's going to take me three or four solid days uh, of work to do and I just don't have that the time to do some of the more extensive repairs and I'm so glad that I can hand them off to you and know that they're going to be done uh, perfectly and know that they're going to be done uh, uh, just you know with no with no corners cut you, you just do such excellent work I'm just I'm, I'm really a fan of your work well thank you Eric I appreciate that and I do appreciate you uh Feeding me these repairs, I, I'm really happy to have the association with Emerald City Guitars, too. It's a great shop, and a lot of cool vintage stuff comes through, and it's wonderful people to work for and with, and um, okay. it, 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 it's a feather in my cap, too, to be a part of your your uh, repair offerings down there. So thank Good. you much, too. Yeah, and, and it's great to, to meet someone like you. Well, not only have you got so much experience, but you're really in tune with what needs to be done to... Um, to keep the uh, uh, the integrity of a vintage guitar intact, you know, so many repair guys can just, you know, they maybe they do good work, but they just bulldoze the the originality of the guitar, and they can you can really destroy the value on a guitar, even if the 
even if the guitar, even if the work is done well, if it's not done in the right way, you can really hurt the value on some of these vintage, especially vintage acoustic instruments. I couldn't agree more. And uh, that is, you know, there, there are people out there with very great skills, just like you said. They do, do excellent work. I've seen people whose work is downright scary good, but they don't necessarily see the whole picture, at least the way I do. I would, for in 41 years of doing repair and building, I would say it's in the last 20 years that I kind of the light bulb went off and an aha, a way of thinking and considering everything, all the aspects about a guitar. Because if you haven't thought it through correctly, even with the best of skills, you're proceeding in the wrong direction, then you're going to get less than optimal results, either in, like you say, the in protecting the originality and value in, uh, of the vintage instrument, or in um, what I call painting oneself in a corner by doing things that don't leave you the outs uh, and forever modified and changed and and devalued for that. So yeah, you know, and, a, yeah. a big part of that for me is using original materials when it's possible. You know, a, a lot of times that's that's hard to do. Uh, ivory is, of course, there's a ban on ivory. There has been for fifty years. Uh, Brazilian rosewood is the same thing. There are materials available, but it's just getting scarcer and scarcer. And, uh, you know, things like hide glue, um, some of the old techniques and old materials, that's why those guitars sound so good, isn't it? Don't you think? I think it's a key component with it. There are so so many new builders who are trying to do tribute uh, work to the golden age of American guitar building. Uh, but I feel like they've kind of disregarded some of the most important aspects and for sure one of those would be the use of hide glue instead of aliphatic or vinyl glues like so so many people use um i just feel like if we emulate what what the original people used and what's still always to this day used in the violin world uh we can't go wrong and and having worked with uh, hide glue for instance it's such a remarkably wonderful material to uh join things with and then re-separate again down the road as needed. So high yeah. glue is the glue that affords uh, effective repairs down the road without de- degrading the wood or the joint, uh, things like that, where the other glues really create problems. You know, when I, and, and the materials, too. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, uh, the other thing about high glue that I feel it, uh, that it's superior to the, the modern glues is that it, it transfers vibration better. Yes. Uh, it dries glass hard, uh, and it almost creates a vacuum and just draws wood together so tightly. I have left uh, hide glue in my little glass terrines that I heated in, and uh, one time I forgot about it, and I thought, well, I'll just see what this does to just continue to watch it dry. And as it slowly dehydrated, uh, it became like glass hard, and then when I finally pulled the glue out of the glass terrine, it actually... Uh, etched the glass. It uh, it was molecular. I don't know what occurs, but it, the bond was so strong wow. that it actually dimpled and etched the glass. Well, wow. so that's powerful adhesion. Yeah, it is. And with with the modern glues, the aliphatic resins, that like tight bond, and the wood glues like that. You know, when they dry, even when they dry fully cured, they they still just have this kind of very slightly rubbery thing going on that can't right. be good for, for the transfer no, of, a, of string there's energy. There's always that film between the joint and it creeps. The joints creep and that's nothing we need in neck sets or especially bridges. So Yeah, it almost acts the, like a... It almost the real act- bane of, of guitar repair is bridges that have been re-glued too many times for failed joints and done yeah. with tight bond yeah. where the, the joint itself on the spruce it gets eroded and degraded because it has to be cleaned each time and it's yeah. hard to pull all of that that vinyl glue out of there, and uh, whereas high glue washes off with hot water, and you, you use no wood fibers, everything is clean, and you have a fresh joint ready to go. With the tight bonds and, and vinyl glues like that, they you have to kind of get to a new surface. And so, I've had to build up the spruce in tops where it's been eroded and scooped out by as much as fifty percent. Wow! And uh, that void, uh, you can't glue to that void. The glue can't fill that void and have any strength. Plus, tonally, it just doesn't do a thing for it. So yeah. adding the spruce back has been a common repair for some of these uh, repeated bridge reglues. And then when the spruce is back and the joint's tight and it's high, 
glue back in there again, things are good to go for a long time. Yeah. You know, I, I'll, I'll still use vinyl glue on in some occasions. I'm curious to know if you do. Uh, let me think here. The last time I used any vinyl glue, I think only on a cheap instrument where it was built with such poor materials and something just needed to be closed up quickly uh, yeah. for somebody. But uh, in general... No, I, I don't think I've. I don't think I've used it more than once or twice in the last twenty-five years. Yeah. Well, and you predominantly work on only high-end instruments, so that's probably why I, I do a lot of uh, work on all kinds of instruments. So I, I definitely see my right. share of my, my share of cheap Asian instruments that I just don't. A lot of times, don't, you know, I don't feel like it warrants heating up the glue. Right. Well, the time and effort to fit uh, glue uh, to to work with high glue to create a, a good joint. There's a lot more prep time. I mean, I pretty much have to have, uh, and when I'm gluing anything with high glue, it's uh, all the calls are cut, all the clamps are laid out. I pre-clamp everything, then unclamp and lay things out in a very systematic uh, order so that when it's time to brush the surfaces with glue, uh, you have seconds basically to create that joint and give it its initial squeeze and to get it to hold. And then uh, with my clamps pre-laid out, then just go through a very efficient but quick system of throwing the clamps in and tightening everything and cleaning it up and uh, and good to go. So it does it is more time involved, like more labor intensive and sometimes I have to work fast. Uh, oh yeah. That's one thing friends have noticed when I'm in my shop sometimes uh, they have to step back and just watch and say nothing because I'm moving quick. <laughs> yeah, that stuff sets up fast. Hide glue really sets fast and if you're not if you're not prepared for it, you can really get in a mess fast. Right, and you can rehydrate it along the way. There's yeah. some methods to steam and add hot water and things like that. But, uh, but for let's say the most important joint I think on the whole guitar is probably that bridge joint, uh, and just getting that pressed in place and held to where it takes its initial bond, and then adding clamps. Uh, there, it's a good joint. It works very well. Yeah, you know another glue that I use a lot is super glue. Um, I don't really yeah. use it in structural applications, but it's got so many other uh, applications. Do you ever use any cyanacrylate glue, super glue? Uh, I use it. That's the only other glue I use, and I use it for, I glue all my frets in with super glue when cool. I do refrets. Yeah, uh, me too. I actually add glue to the end of the fret and clamp them in place. Yeah. I'll use it to repair ebony where there's checks, cracks, or slivers, or chips. Yeah, and me too. And ebony dust and, and uh, super glue make wonderful patches and repairs. Uh, the spot repair on nuts, uh, where the, the the slots are cut too deep, I, I'll put in bone or ivory dust and a drop of super glue and accelerator and makes a perfect amalgam, sort of like a dentist's amalgam for repairing teeth. Yeah. It works very well. And so, yeah, life is so much easier with super glue on so many small repairs and, and fittings that way. When You know, I've got a few old... Um guitar repair books from the 60s and 70s that are really interesting to read and it cracks me up one of them um i think it's the hero kamimoto book uh yes complete, hideo kamimoto yeah right. to, mm-hmm. yeah today okay uh hideo that's his name uh yes it cracks me up because he's talking about this new space age glue called super glue um yeah so when you started out were 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 guitar repair guys using much super glue no, there wasn't super glue when I started. And in fact, the other glue that people were trying to put frets in and things like that was either the tight bond, uh, which just took too long to set up. Some people would use epoxies uh, or five-minute epoxies. And again, I, I find that epoxies kind of creep too. Um, but there just wasn't super glue back in the day. In the, in the early days, there really was uh, not much of a roadmap for this stuff uh, yeah. in terms of we didn't have Stuart McDonald Luther supplies or Luther's Mercantile. Right. There weren't specialized tools or awareness or protocols and procedures to even work on these guitars back or then. Or schools or anything like that, yeah. Yeah, so so all of this sort of came of age, but the super glue, when that was available to the public, that was uh, um, just a miracle fix for so many quick spot repairs, and like I said, particularly things like frets and gluing little chips and bits and things like that. It's yeah. wonderful stuff in that regard. I've been... I've been repairing guitars about 20 years, and it's amazing because um, it's. I've been fortunate uh, to pretty much the entire time to have the resources that, that have been available um, that if I'd started earlier, I wouldn't have had, you know, the. I mean, the Internet, for one thing. People are posting 
YouTube videos and and all kinds of things about guitar repair. It's such a good resource there. It, it's also oh, yeah. it also can be yeah, a bad, the internet's amazing for it all. Yeah, absolutely. It can be a bad resource if because there's bad information on there too. But um, you know, super super for glue, sure. all the all the things that uh, are just um, I just started out with. You know, it's amazing to think that you know if you were repairing guitars in the seventies, it was just it was. There was just no such thing. There was there wasn't some of those materials available. Uh, well, and there are things that have gotten very uh, contrarian, uh, and in fact, some of the old repair methods are are uh, horrifying, actually, and yeah. uh, do sort of strike a mark against guitars. For instance, uh, guitars were needing neck sets, and originally, people didn't really have their their methodology quite figured out as nicely as we do today. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, one of the most frightening ones, and uh, I never did this. I've seen it, but it just never sounded right to me. Was uh, instead of removing the neck, the uh, neck block was freed from the back and yeah. the sides, and the sides were just pulled in, and then the lip that was created by the excess back material was carved away and then rerouted for the binding and basically just sort of torquing the body shape and then reattaching. Yeah. And uh, that's a horrible repair, I yeah, think. Yeah, well, I've, I've heard it called the California neck reset. I don't know why, but that's... Yeah, the California slip or something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I've seen it in guitars that have it. I kind of groan. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one of those out there. And there's a few more that next used to be steamed with slicing the heel cap off and then steaming the joint through there and then reassembling that or through the neck block on the inside. But uh, those weren't quite so invasive. But yeah, point being that it, it, you can look look this up online or uh, and find exactly what you should do to treat these things correctly. Yeah, the so. only the only time the neck block slip seems like it might be approaching. Uh, appropriate to me is on guitars where you can't reset the neck, like some of the Asian Yamahas where they're, where they're epoxied on or doweled on. I've heard of right, guys exactly. doing that, but but I, I just don't even I don't want to do those. I, I well, I've you know had, what, it's a lot of work. It's very invasive, and and to cosmetically dial all that up and have it present well, it's a tremendous amount of work. It probably would start to question whether it exceeds the value of the instrument. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of people. I've had a lot of people ask me over the years to do a neck reset on a Yamaha, and I just won't do them. I, I've just never been in there, and I don't know what's going on in there, but I assume they're epoxied on, and the only way to do it uh, would be to slip the they heel. They have two dowels is what the older ones were, and they were flush butt with two dowels yeah. and a pretty tough glue. And I've heard of people sawing the neck off and carefully, and you can buy a saw that only has the curve set on one mm. side, so you can do that saw cut. Uh, with some caution without really scarring up the sides. And so there is a method to do that. Yeah. And then you have a flush butt joint, and the only thing that really holds a flush butt joint is probably something like epoxy at that point. Yeah, and dowels. Uh, but again, I try to stay away from that stuff. It's not anything I want to spend my time with. Me too. Uh, they just weren't made yeah. to come apart. They just weren't made to come apart. That's the thing. No, and yeah. I understand the temptation. A lot of old Yamahas actually sound pretty good. They're yeah. all plywood guitars. They're remarkably nice-sounding guitars, and they have yeah. some age on them. Uh, but yeah, they just weren't made to come apart and be worked on. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. I wanted to ask you about kind of as far as you know the history of neck resets because I've heard different information from different people, and I, you know, one a few of the old uh, guitar repair books that I've got from the '70s mention neck resets, although they're not terribly detailed about it. Uh, right. Were people doing neck resets on vintage Martins when you started doing repairs in the seventies? Uh, no, I I wasn't aware of it in the seventies. The first book that I got a hold of was Don Teeter's book, and he had two volumes actually, and he used a lot of epoxy. And I, I don't recall right now if he mentioned much about the neck set or taking the neck out. My he, he did. initial he, recollection was with uh, an article in I think Fretz magazine talking to one of the uh, Richard I think at. Uh, Griffin Music, who was talking about doing a neck reset, oh. and and I was very aware that this is something I really needed to get get involved with and start doing because it's pivotal to make these things play with. You know, the idea yeah. of shaving bridges down or oh, yeah. planing, trying to plane fingerboards to find the angle was not. I could see that wasn't the avenue to really produce the results, and uh, 
So when that article came out, I read it, and then I called him up and got a little bit more information from him, and I just started tackling some cheaper instruments, taking them apart and trying it, and it's sort of become my favorite repair to do. That's my specialty is neck resets and trying to read all the problems inherent with a neck and a body, and at the same time in doing that, to try to correct those factors and so that somebody has a nice playing guitar again. Yeah. You mentioned Don Teeter's book, and I, if I remember right, he did do neck resets, and, and uh, again, it wasn't really a method we'd want to use today. I think he would saw the fingerboard off. That's right, yeah, saw the fingerboard off at the um, 14th fret yeah. or wherever the body, uh, neck joined the body, that's right, and then uh, putting up, that's right, he would put a, some sort of like a hot knife with yeah. water into the joint and kind of boil it around in there or something yeah. like that and then start to press it apart. Yeah, not something we'd want so, to do today. You can't blame him. I mean, these pioneers, you know, they they didn't have any guideposts along the way and they were kind of burning new territory there. But the the way I heard the story was that the Martin factory would would do customer neck resets, but they didn't want anybody to know about it. Like they didn't uh, they didn't want the secret out of yeah. how, you know, they, they would tell people, oh, those necks don't come off. Right. And then somehow, along the way, yeah, we all figured that. it out. I don't know. Well, again, with the Internet, we had the free exchange of information, and that's done wonders for repairs. And uh, I have seen some very clever things that people have come up with. Uh, for instance, one of the very cool things, uh, I'm trying to remember whose work this was. I, I'm drawing a blank right now, but the ability to re the top needed to be replaced on an instrument uh, you know damage beyond salvageability and being able to set up a jig with the new top such in a manner to route the old top off and route the new top that's going to go in at the same time by having it taped in place and shimmed up so that when the guitar new top is braced uh, it fits inside of the old binding original binding and purflings and um, makes for a very clean-looking repair that never got disturbed, so the binding stays intact. Hmm. Possibly, I think, maybe another route for one of the inner purflings, but the outer binding is, is there and intact, and it can, done well, it can really fool somebody. To, wow. Like, did this ever happen? Wow. And I, that's that's my goal, is to go in, do the repairs, and step back out and try to make it look like uh, you know, nobody's ever been there. Yeah, and not to fool anybody, but just to make it, you know, the integrity of the instrument uh, there. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Always full disclosure when it comes time oh, to, yeah. you know, of selling a guitar or talking about it. But uh, but that's the idea. If you can make a, a repair that nobody can even know and you tell them about it, of course you're proud of that sort of thing. And yeah, and, happy it, to and, it, and it maintains the value of, of the instrument. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about ivory versus bone. You know, I, I hear you hear so much talk about tone, and everybody's ears are different. But um, you know, bone is kind of the standard nowadays because we don't really use ivory anymore on new instruments. But uh, I wanted right. to, I wanted to talk to you about that and and hear your opinion on on the differences of ivory versus bone. Well, we know that Martin used it all the way, I think, up until, I think, the mid to late 60s. Gibson typically always used bone. Um, so that having been said, I've, I've had a small stash of Brazilian rosewood and ivory over the years, purchased legally with receipts and accounts and all that. And I say that because one of the persons that I bought my ivory and pearl from way back in the day uh, was raided by the feds and confiscated everything. And he actually did produced documents from his original day in business and uh, kind of completely baffled him that his records were that good. And so point being, there was a legal trade and harvest in ivory at one point and in Brazilian rosewood um, before CITES treaty and all that. And so I saw my point is I'm saying this, I have these materials that I save for where vintage appropriate. And what I would say about ivory versus bone is bone is, uh, more glass-like in its tap tone, and ivory sounds more like a piece of wood. It's got a grain-like wood. Mm-hmm. Bone is more porous, uh, more like an amalgam uh, or with a porosity to it, uh, density or porosity, depending on the cut of the bone. But ivory is, behaves more like the grain of a dense wood. So when you tap them, uh, just uh, I would do this sometimes with just saddle blanks, and just tap them on an anvil or something, uh, a nice hard surface, and just listen to their tones. 
And generally, the ivory always has a, a deeper, lower, I would call it a woodier tone, and the, and the bone is a glassier tone. And so everything being so microphonic around the bridge of acoustic guitar, uh, I would consider them sometimes as tone filters. What what you use for the saddle material can ha- impart some effect on the harmonics, uh, the frequency of the of the sound of the instrument. So mm-hmm. if I, for instance, if I wanted to brighten up a guitar, my first... In general, my first uh, suggestion might be to go with bone, and if somebody wanted a warmer tone, uh, they might go with a piece of ivory. Wow. But generally, if I'm working on an old Martin, I try to use the ivory for that because that's what was there, yeah. and um, and that's appropriate to, just for the originality's sake. But anymore, I always offer that it up to people that if they're thinking of traveling with their guitar out of the country or something like that, they might want to go with bone just to avoid being hassled if somebody were to some inspector overly zealous inspector were to put a magnifying glass or a loop on a piece of ivory and go oh that's ivory there let's see your receipts oh i'm yeah. sorry that we're going to keep this guitar yeah i've heard a few horror stories but I it don't happens know if they're myth or, or fact i don't know but it, who needs to find out yeah what do you think about fossil ivory um i've got some fossilized mammoth ivory that looks great but it to me it it behaves more like bone, I guess, because it's been mineralized. Uh, but that's right, cer- that's exactly. certainly I'll legal. Call it more bone-like too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's definitely got a beautiful stuff. Though. It is beautiful, and it you know if it sounds as good as bone and has a nice grain to it, I don't see any reason not to use it. Um, it is beautiful oh, absolutely. stuff. Absolutely, it's hard yeah. to get good pieces of it big enough without voids. Is what I've found, and then it can be kind of pricey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, uh, truss rods. We all know that vintage Martins don't have truss rod, uh, an adjustable truss rod. They've got just the uh, the, the metal. Um, yeah, originally, well, originally they just only had an ebony insert. Right. Then later on they had a, a steel T-bar, and right. then, then they went back to the ebony uh, insert again during wartime years with the metal shortages. And then after that, the T-bar again, and then to a square tube later mm-hmm. on, and then ultimately to an adjustable truss rod. Yeah, in what, like the, and, mid, the mid-80s, I think? Yeah, I think so. That sounds about right. And me personal, my personal tastes are that if you could have just a neck that was strong and straight and it didn't matter if it had tension on or off, that would be the ideal because that would mean that the neck is so rigid uh, and stable that when the string is plucked and, and stretched that all that energy goes into the bridge in the top rather than the neck slightly deflecting and absorbing some of that. Yeah. Uh, I have worked on some guitars with truss rods where the neck has no inherent strength at all yeah. and really it's the truss rod doing the work almost like a big counterbalance spring yeah. so that when you would sight the neck with no tension on it, the neck had a huge reverse bow but then under tension you could dial it with the truss rod exactly to the amount of you know, minimal release that you want for an ideal neck and by appearances it looks right but when you think you know i guess you know, physically what's happening there the, the neck's acting like a big spring and i think it's absorbing some of the energy that should be going into the top and ultimately losing some tone and volume for that yeah. so if we can make a straight stiff neck that's my choice and my preference and uh yeah that's interesting that's really interesting because that's exactly what a truss rod is doing is it's it's almost like a spring like a counterbalance spring, mm-hmm. yeah, hmm. yeah. Interesting. And, I, and I understand for people wanting to fine tune electrics for you know with different string gauges. I think guitars are built to handle a variety of string gauges and uh, playing styles. And I don't think it's as critical there. It's probably, I'm sure, most people appreciate yeah. having a the ability to lightly adjust a truss rod when you're playing with nines or tens in the fingerboard. It's you know the right. strings are set right to the fingerboard, and if there's a little too much relief or too much uh, backbow that's you have that adjustability and I, I think that's a very valid use of it but in acoustic instruments i think we can get away from it yeah it's a different and, world uh, huh mm-hmm. yeah different completely different world do you do you do much with electric guitars only from the mechanical aspects i'll i'll uh, fix your you know, do refrets uh, and i'll fix broken headstocks or damage anything physically uh, that they need repairing on, I'll do. But when it comes to electrics, I step away and proudly defer to that stuff to people like you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, that's most of what I send you is acoustic guitars. So I never really thought to ask, but I, I assumed that you work on on electric guitars, like you say. You know, just when uh, the mechanics of them. Yeah. 
Yeah, broken headstock is pretty common when they're doing a lot of people's electrics when they come because when they take a dive, all that weight coming down on that headstock and typically like a Gibson headstock where there's a big cavity in it because there's a truss rod at the at the top of the neck there the, the and the actually access point and it's also because of the nature of the way the neck's carved from a billet it's a very short grain there and so that tends to be where necks want to pop is right yeah. there and uh, so I, I've developed some good repairs that will make sure that that joint is stronger than new and uh, mm-hmm. mm, Without, without looking, you know, it can make it as nice as somebody wants or as utility as somebody wants. It just depends yeah. what the budget is and what the guitar calls for. Do, will you go as far as refinishing the, that area after you've done the repair? I have one of the tricks I do if something's really degraded or typically been glued before and then it comes to my shop where the joint, the, the crack has just been degraded too much. Uh, I'll actually glue the peg, peg head back on and then take a very careful slice and grind a scorp out of the back of the headstock and bend a new piece of mahogany or maple, whatever the neck uh, is made out of, bend a new piece in and uh, so that it's nice long grain that's fitting in there. And then I'll carve that into shape and then do the appropriate stain fill and relacquering or shellacking depends on what it's, what's required there to yeah. bring it in. And uh, it's a strong repair. It's always a, it's always a repair, but it's a repair that typically a person can rest assured they're never going to have to deal with that again. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and done well, I think it's a legitimate repair. A lot of people are, I think uh, guitar values are degraded a lot with broken headstocks and broken heels on necks because they're oftentimes repaired poorly. Yeah. And uh, once they're glued once with the wrong glue, you don't really get a second chance. That's the beauty, again, of high glue. If the joint fails, high glue can always be redone again without any degradation to the crack or the joint. And with these other glues, again, you get once, and after that, it's a diminishing returns on the success rate of, and without doing something much more involved to, like I just spoke about, you know, laminating a piece on the back of the headstock there, something like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, that, you know, I that's all I've got for today. I just I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. How can people get in touch with you? Um, they they, uh, if 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 they've got repairs for you here in the uh, Seattle area, I know they can come through Emerald City Guitars. Is do you have- right? I'm always happy to support the store there. Uh, so that's for sure um, an easy way to do it. Uh, because I do live on the Kitsap Peninsula, I'm a, I'm not the most convenient uh, destination, but the store is always great. But I always can be uh, reached via email or phone number, and my. My email is my name, Mark Dossman at yahoo.com, and my phone number is 206-914-1040. And uh, so I'm always available to speak with, and I'm uh, happy to talk about guitars or advise, and, and should the need for repairs arise, we can meet at um, Emerald City or, or wherever it work, can works out conveniently yeah. for, yeah, for the I'm, exchange. Yeah, great. And yeah. I'm, I'm happy to send you some of this work, too, because I'm... I'm I'm just drowning in repairs, you know, and it's repairs that I that I can uh do in a timely manner, you know, so that uh some of these repairs that are that would take me 3 days if I'm able to to farm them out to you then I'm 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 not going to fall so right. far behind, you know, cuz I that's that's the trick is trying to keep my turnaround time down to a, about a week and uh boy exactly. if, if, if I get, and it's it's true though in your shop who you you could just probably stay busy all day long just setting up every guitar that walked in the door, and it would be a valuable service and a profitable service for you and a great service for the customer. And I've done that for many, many years in my life, just had a repair shop in the store and just took everything that comes in. Uh, but I do enjoy the challenges of the bigger jobs at this time in, in my life. It's I actually don't make... I put more time into the repairs. I don't make quite the same money with my bag of tricks, just doing, you know, setups and refrets quickly, things like that, that I I really have down well. But, you know, you got to grind a lot of metal to do a little bit of woodworking in in that venue of uh, guitar repair. And I like the woodwork aspect. So I'm I'm happy to do the bigger jobs and take more time with it. And that's still the joy and the challenge for me. And they're so time consuming. It's, it's hard to bill the amount of hours that you actually spent doing some of these more extensive repairs just because they're so complicated. Yeah, my wife tells me all the time I'm in denial about what time I'm spending and what I'm charging, but <laughs> you know, 
Somehow, I don't know, it all works. Yeah, it all, it all <laughs> comes together. Great. Well, I, I really appreciate you joining me here on the podcast, and I uh, look forward to keep working with you in the future. Well, thank you, Eric. And I have one last statement I'd like to offer up everybody who owns a vintage guitar, is that although perhaps mostly wealthy people own the expensive guitars and the rest of us, or we're lucky to own whatever it is we have and cherish it, be mindful that it isn't really ownership exclusively, but more stewardship. These guitars outlive us. Properly cared for, these guitars will go through several generations of owners and giving them their best care and their best thought forward for how they can be preserved for the future is what my intentions and efforts are are towards these instruments. So everybody be good stewards. Love your guitars, play them, use them, but don't abuse them. And when they need help, you know, bring them to the right people who care about them this way. Oh, that's great, man. I, I really appreciate that. Okay, Eric. Okay. Well, have a good one. We'll see you soon. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that does it for the show. Send in your questions or comments. Go to ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send in your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. You can call or text 757-774-8482, and uh, you'll hear your question on the show, and you'll be the envy of all your guitar nerd friends. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.